Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Father, you are holy indeed. Lord, and we just consider it an honor to be able to sing those words out to you and to join the angels in heaven singing holy, holy, holy in your name, Lord. We just thank you for the opportunity to gather here today as your people saved by you, knowing that you promise in your word, in the book of Revelation, that you will come again and you will restore righteousness to our path and you will bring this world and bring the heaven in alignment with your glory and that we can all spend an eternity around your throne, worshiping you, Lord. We just thank you for that gift today. Lord, speak to Artie today, and uh, let his words uh, be your words. Let your plan for us, your glorious plan, just be revealed to us today as we spend our time here listening to what you have in store for us. Lord, we know that your plan is awesome, and we can't even fathom how awesome it might be. And for those of us today, Lord, who are hurting and in trouble and feel forsaken and feel alone and don't feel the joy around us, Lord, just let us know that you are there. Turn your countenance upon us, Lord, and let us know that you are here and that you're right alongside us through the battle and that you've promised victory on the other side. Lord, we just praise your name, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Michael. If after today Ron ever lets me teach again here, Michael, you got to sing that song before I get up every time, okay? Because it's like, hey, we got to go now, right? This is good stuff. I used to think growing up in First Baptist Church of Skellytown, Texas. Anybody here know where Skellytown? Oh, good, good. We got some people who know where Skellytown is. It's that is up 50 miles northeast of Amarillo. When I was a kid, I thought Amarillo was the biggest city in the world. At First Baptist Church, Skellytown, Texas, Skellytown had about 716 people back then, give or take. First Baptist Church, and that pastor would get up, Milton Thompson was his name, and he would stand up and talk about the book of Revelation. He would talk about how heaven is going to be just like one long church service. And I thought, oh, Lord, I don't want to go, please. I mean... If that's what heaven was like, First Baptist Church, Skellytown, Texas, I'm not sure I was ready to go. But if it's like that last song here, maybe I'd be okay. There is a sense in which looking forward to whatever is out there in the future is going to be unbelievable, unfathomable. And today... Uh, this week, Ron asked if uh, Matthew and I, Matthew uh, taught the first two uh, services this morning, and asked if we would do an overview of Revelations chapter, uh, the chapters of Revelation 4 through 18. I put that on Facebook this morning, and a pastor friend of mine in Oklahoma said, that's not even a bus tour of Revelation, that's a jet tour. So you got to really strap your seatbelt on and get your way through And quite frankly, I'm not going to try to go through chapter by chapter or verse by verse. It's just obviously there's a lot there uh, that's too much there. So uh, what I'm going to try to do is give a quick overview of the things that are described in Revelation 4 through 18 and then talk a little bit about what I believe, from my perspective, applies to us in our world today. I think every good story has certain aspects to it. You guys remember the movie 300 from a couple of years ago? Now, the story of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae is one of my favorite stories of all time. And when I first saw the previews to that movie, I thought, oh, come on. Scantily clad Spartans, right? They're wearing like a bikini and a a cape? Who wears a cape in the battle, right? I mean, 
in my mind I'm thinking, there's no way this movie is worth going to see. It's got all these 300 Spartans dressed, barely covered. You know, the king of Persia was nine feet tall. It had all these animals in it that were not real. And as I watched those previews, I remember thinking, I'm I'm not going to go see that. I don't want to ruin the story of these 300 men who stood their ground against what was then the greatest army in the world, held their own at a place called Thermopylae so that the rest of the Greek army could assemble themselves. But then when it was on TV or something like that, I thought, well, I'll, I'll start to watch. And as I watched this movie, it all fell into place for me. Because if you've seen the movie, or if you haven't seen the movie, what the movie really is, the one soldier who was sent back away from Thermopylae back to begin to muster the rest of the Greek army. And the king of Sparta said that that he and those 299 other soldiers would take a stand. They would hold off the Persian army long enough that the rest of the army could be assembled and the battle could be won. And what you find out at the end of the movie is that that one soldier who was sent back is there telling the rest of the army the story. And he is laying out for them a story of what they're about to face. But a story also of the courage of those 300 men who went before them. And he tells the story like any good storyteller, right? He gets quiet. He gets loud. He talks about the king of Persia as if he's nine feet tall and the voice booms like Andre the Giant's voice or whatever the voice of God sounds like, like Charlton Heston heard in the Ten Commandments. And it is this story that at the end of the storytelling, the army, like I felt after singing this song, that army is ready to take on hell with a water pistol. I mean, they are ready to jump in. I think that's, for me, what the book of Revelation really is a lot about. It is a story. And it's a story that that is true, but a story that God is revealing to John for him to write down. And it's a story that gets whispery at some point. And it's a story that talks about the courage of certain people. And it's a story that talks about the magnificence of a God who comes to conquer and to establish His kingdom, and to reign on earth. And there is so much of that story in Revelation 4-18. through We're going to pick up a little bit in chapter 4, and I'm just going to kind of come thumb through some of the chapters there as we look at some of the high notes of what's going on in Revelation chapter 4 verses uh, through 18. Chapter 4 verse 1 says this, After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, the best we know, uh, Ron laid out a great uh, couple of introductory sermons to the book of Revelation. The best we know, this was written in the late first century, probably sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's an amazing time for this early Christian church, this early followers of the way, as they were typically known uh, in, in those days. And it's a challenging time. And kind of the first thing that really leaps out of this story to me is not so much what's in the story as to who the story is being told to. 
At the end of the first century, the early church had begun to see some of that separation from Judaism as a religious body. The first probably 30, 40, 50 years, the Jews, I mean the Christians, the followers of Jesus, were almost all Jews. And so they were very much perceived both inside and outside the church as sort of a, a sect of Judaism. They were the, in their own minds, they were the fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And they saw Jesus as the culmination of everything that had happened in the Old Testament. But towards the years, late 50s, the 60s, the 70s, as Paul began to preach the gospel in all parts of Asia and Europe, as the other of the 12 apostles began to preach in other parts of the world and the church was beginning to spread, and this message of Jesus was beginning to spread, people more and more inside and outside the church began to see that this was something new. This was a new covenant. This was a new promise. And as Paul experienced and as Peter experienced in, in Acts, it began to include Gentiles. It began to include those who prior to that had been excluded from the gospel. In fact, Paul writes a lot about those inside and outside in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about we who were two people now have become one in Christ Jesus. Most of us in the room are included in that Gentile part. We have been brought in. We were grafted into the vine, Paul uses the metaphor, to say that we are now one with God's purpose of his people throughout the course of history. But in that last part of the first century, things began to go really badly from a human perspective. Persecution came from the Jews first strongly. You remember the way it progressed with Jesus the religious leaders of the Jews only brought him before a Roman court, ended up getting him tried in some mock trials and getting him persecuted. By the time not much time passes and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 preaches one of the greatest sermons in the history of the world and is martyred, stoned, right there is the first Christian martyr at the feet of a man named Saul from Tarsus. That progression of persecution continues to grow. Not only that, outside the church, persecution began to come. For a period of time, the Romans perceived the followers of Jesus as kind of a, a Jewish sect, and so they afforded them the same protections that Jews would have, which weren't a lot, but they were some. But by the time the end of the century is coming around, that is gone. Followers of the way are seen as Cannibals, because they talk about eating flesh and drinking blood during their agape feasts. They're seen as immoral and even atheistic, because they don't believe in all of the gods that are out there. They're heavily persecuted, to the point that even Nero tries to blame, to a certain degree, the burning of Rome on Christians. They're scattered throughout, especially when Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D. They're scattered throughout the land, and everywhere they go, there are people without a home. They're aliens and strangers, to use the biblical phrase. They're immigrants without proper documentation. They have no home. They have no place. They are truly a marginalized people. Today, by the way, is Orphan Sunday. With Our work with World Vision 
Our work is to help the marginalized people of the world to find the place where they can experience life, experience hope, experience the fullness of all God has for them in spite of the circumstances they might find in their life. Eight days ago, I was in Uganda and getting to see some of, if you were here in January, when we showed the Journey to Jamaa film, I got to visit the place where Journey to Jamaa was, was filmed. Incredible to see what has happened in these communities. World Vision has been working there since 1998, and we're actually coming to the place where we're exiting that particular area. And it's amazing to see how what you hear the stories of 12, 13, 14 years ago, right after the war in Uganda, of how bad this place was in a place called Tasangombe. How devastated the people were, how without hope they were, and here we are now, 13 years later, about to leave that area from a World Vision staff standpoint because the people of that community have become so empowered on their own and so enamored with the grace of God and with the teachings of moral truth that they have begun to take responsibility for their own economic stability, for their own drilling of wells, for their own moral standards so that AIDS and HIV doesn't continue to spread. And to see the volunteers and community leaders and meet them last week was an amazing thing. It is these marginalized people, people who are persecuted, people who are ran off, people who have no home except with the other outcasts that they're with. That is who John writes to. Most of us have never had the experience of being a marginalized person. We've never been on the outside looking in. Most of us have been a part of the dominant culture here in the U.S. And that is the people, though, that John writes these words to that I think God is telling this story to. He goes on to talk about there's this sense of worship that happens throughout these chapters. We sang the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The angels sing. Then there is this series of persecutions that begins to unfold starting in chapters 5 and the following, a seal, a scroll is handed out. The angel comes, a powerful angel, and the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And as each of those seven seals are broken by the Lamb, a, a really bad thing happens on earth, right? There's this description of destruction. There's death. There's famine. There's plague. Destruction after destruction as each seal is open. And when it comes to the seventh seal... Um, that happens uh, starting in chapter 8. The seventh seal is broken, and there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. When I was in a teenager, we used to say that was proof there were no women in heaven, right? So there's a, But I'm not going to say that now because I talk more than most of you. So that seventh seal is broken, there's silence in heaven, and then comes the seven trumpets, which is even more intense judgment delivered on the earth. Judgment is real. Every one of us, Hebrews says, will one day die and stand before God in judgment. Corinthians, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he talked about all of us standing in front of the judgment seat to receive the results of what we have done in the flesh, whether good or bad. There is a judgment that is real that will be poured out on the earth. And can you imagine what these people, marginalized, persecuted, murdered, 
what they must have felt to know that God cared about their lives. Enough that He was going to bring an end to that sort of sin and evil that was there. The seven trumpets sound, and there's a little bit of an interlude in there where it talks about dragons and a woman who bears a child and the two witnesses who come, who are dot, who are killed, and then come back to life. I have to confess, I believe the Chinese proverb that says predicting is really hard, especially in regards to the future. I think that it's... We we have a hard time looking back at history and saying what actually happened, right? Much less looking at the future. And and I will also confess my bias when it comes to the book of Revelation is I think the primary purpose of the book of Revelation, different maybe than some of you or some others that, that teach a lot about Revelation, I think most of it was for the purpose of encouraging those people that were there 2,000 years ago facing those kinds of trials, facing those kinds of temptations and persecutions. And I think the story that they were hearing would have meant a lot to them. There's a woman, and the, the, the dragon tries to kill her son. He can't. The son escapes. Then he pursues the woman. There's all of this allegory that points to the Jews and Israel and to Jesus and all the things that are there. Again, I'm not going to pretend that I understand what that looks like. But then comes... A beast, and then a second beast, and they wreak havoc against those who have the mark of God on them. comes all the way through to where there are finally seven plagues and seven bowls of wrath that get poured out onto the earth. And the beast then, this antichrist, if you will, becomes so full of power that he or she begins to control the entire earth with the mark of the beast. I think it's really interesting. Yesterday I had the chance to go to both Lifeway and Barnes and & Noble. And while there I perused through the sections looking for books about Revelation. And it's amazing what people think that the mark of the beast is or who the beast is. You've got some who say that the beast is the Roman Catholic Church. You've got others who say the, the, anti, or the same groups will say the Antichrist is going to be a pope. You've got some who say the Antichrist. I mean, nobody will ever name their child Nicola, Nikolai Carpathia. Was that the name of the guy, right, in, in the Left Behind series? You've got all this stuff. You've got David Jeremiah wrote a book, and he's talking about the mark of the beast is the scanner that they'll put under your skin to be able to, to buy and sell. It's all speculation. Some of it could be true. Some of it might not be true. But the real truth is... God brings judgment onto the earth to those who are opposed to Him. And God cares deeply for those who are persecuted for His name. The thing I want to say about the mark of the beast, and I really believe this, is I don't think anybody will ever be tricked out of the church to take on the mark of the beast, whatever that mark is. I think sometimes we're really afraid, oh, what's the mark of the beast? Am I going to take it? You know, people used to say, if you had a checking account, that was the mark of the beast. If you got credit cards, that was going to be the mark of the beast. Now you're going to get this little thing implanted under your skin, and that's going to be the mark of the beast. The reality is, for the people he was writing to, they were often put in a public place and said, say that Caesar is Lord. And I really believe in their minds to say Caesar is Lord was the mark of the beast. Because they knew there was only one Lord. 
And they would often say, Jesus is Lord. And many of them lost their lives for that. In chapter 18, it comes to the place where whatever is the allegorical Babylon there, most people tend to think it has to do with the Roman Empire, falls. It's destroyed. And I don't want to steal any thunder that Ron will do, but let's just say that starting in chapter 19 through the end, God wins. It is an amazing story of how God cares very, very deeply for us in our lives and for this world. And that this world is not going to be destroyed, it's going to be renewed. And that the people of God, in spite of the persecution that they were facing then, in spite of persecution that you and I might face in the future, God cares very deeply about the story that's being written on this planet. And that story is ultimately going to end in His glorification. Four things, I think, that I just want to use as kind of takeaways that we've talked a little bit about today. Um, The first one is this. I just think it's important for us to be connected to the people of God. Every place you see the people of God there, whether it's the multitudes from every tribe and tongue and nation that are gathered around the throne, or whether it's the 144,000 who are sealed with the marks on their forehead, whether it's the throngs, the multitudes upon multitudes that come later in the book, that sing the praises of God, it's never about any one of us. Or any one culture of us. Or any one socioeconomic status of us. It's vital for the people of God to be connected to one another. Whether it's in this room, whether it's in this community, in this city, in this nation, around the world. When you travel internationally, those of you who have been able to be on an international mission trip, and you go to a place and in your mind you're thinking, this is such an incredible extreme poverty, I want to I wanna do everything I can to help. And then a week later or two weeks later or however long later you have that debrief session. You know what the first thing we all say in that debrief session is? I came wanting to serve, but I learned so much. I think we need to stay connected with, in particular, the marginalized people of God and learn from them. Learn how they see the story of God from the standpoint of the oppressed, from the standpoint of the disenfranchised, from the standpoint of those who live life without status, without voice, without power. So that's the first thing, be be connected. I think the second thing is be encouraged. I really believe, in spite of the fact that when we read Revelation, we often get really depressed about all the wrath of God that will be poured out onto the world. I believe God wrote those things and told us this story for us to be encouraged, for them to be encouraged, for us to be encouraged. Flip over, if you've got your scriptures, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One of the things that the early church was struggling with is because just like we often do, they believed Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. In fact, what's marked the people of God in nearly every generation for the last 2,000 years is that we believe Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. And they believed it then, in that first century. 
And they believed it so strongly that when believers began to die, especially those who were persecuted for their faith, there were many who began to lose hope in the gospel because these people are dying and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And they were discouraged by that. And Paul writes to a group in Thessalonica, and he says to them in verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice that even Paul says we. He, even Paul, I think, believes that Jesus is coming back in his own lifetime. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these things. God wanted to say to them, you don't have to be without hope. Yes, death is real. Yes, the persecution you're facing is unbelievably real. But God wants to encourage you that even those who die didn't die in vain. They will be raised from the dead, resurrected from the dead, And that will happen even before those of us who are still alive get to be with Jesus. And he wanted to encourage them that death was not the end. Death was not final. And that just because these folks had died didn't mean they weren't going to experience the blessings of God. So be connected. Be encouraged. I think the next one is be alert. That makes me think of the poster I had on my wall when I was a teenager. Be alert. The world needs more alerts. But that's just that doesn't have anything to do with anything. We need to be alert, though. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, I mean, those of us who are old enough to remember 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 88. Edgar Wisenhunt. And then next year, 89 reasons why the rapture will be in 89. Edgar stopped writing books after 89, at least that I found anyway, at least ones that got popularized. You've got Harold Camping predicting the rapture and and the end times earlier this year and then again in October and now we're into November. None of us know what the future holds, but the reality is Jesus could come back today. We need to be alert. Peter said to be alert. Paul said to be alert. Over and over, we are told, you don't know the day or the hour. Be alert. Be on your toes. Not like the alertness. Do you remember the alertness of how fast you tried to clean your room before your parents got home when you were a kid? When you told them that you were going to clean it? Or not to be alert like, oh, it's Sunday night and I've got homework due tomorrow. Let me, you know. But be alert like, I know he could come today. And if he comes today, I'm ready. And I'm ready not because I'm good or worth it, but because he is good and he is worthy. Be alert. I think finally, if you'll turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 
First Peter chapter four, verse seven. And I'll close with this. First Peter chapter four, verse seven says, The end of all things is at hand. See, there it is again. Peter believed it was happening. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The last one is to be different. We need to become the people that the Spirit of God is evident in us. And that we are different because we love differently. And we have joy differently. And we have the peace that passes understanding differently than the rest of the world. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things there is no law. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to be a people who are different from the world around us. Not different about politics or different about the way we dress or different about just trying to be different for different sake, but different in the things that the world takes notice of and says, wow, look at how they love one another. Look at how they care for an orphan. Look at how they serve out of their own, not just out of their abundance, but out of the things they need themselves, they share. We need to be a people who are different because people need to see the God who wrote this story and who's bringing it to an end. And so that the people around us will be a part of that multitude of every tribe and tongue and nation singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. May it be so. Lord, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for how You call us and share us to do great and mighty things, not because we are great and mighty, but because you are. To be filled with your Spirit, to share your love. Help us, Father, to be a people who are peculiar, as Peter says, who are different, who are strange. A people without our own status, a people without our own voice, but a people who live in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak boldly your story, to tell of your grace, to sing of your holiness, to even at times proclaim the judgment that is to come, but to do it all so that you will receive honor and glory and praise from everyone forever and ever. 
May it be so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.